In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Last week we began a three-Sunday stewardship emphasis, reminding that Jesus is the Good Shepherd, and we are His stewards under our Good Shepherd. We heard last week the parables of the lost sheep and the lost coin. Jesus revealed Himself as the steward of the lost. Today, the parable of the dishonest steward, or the dishonest manager, Jesus reveals that he's also the steward of our heart. So he begins this way, there was a rich man who had a manager. Charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. He called to him and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Turn in the accounts of your management, and you can no longer be my, my manager. See, the manager or the steward's job was to look after the master's daily business affairs. Everything belonged to the master, not the manager. He was simply the caretaker. He was the one charged with being responsible and faithful for everything the master laid into his hands and gave him to do. The problem was, as Jesus tells us, this manager was irresponsible. He was caught wasting his master's possessions. He was an unfaithful steward. No wonder then, then when accusations started flying around and getting back to the master's ears, that his manager was squandering his possessions, that he would be called out for his misdeeds, and that the authority that was given him by the master to be a steward would be revoked and taken away. And, but here's where the parable takes one of several rather unexpected turns. You see, we expect the master that once he finds out to do what probably any reasonable employer would do these days, send the guard to accompany him with stern instructions. Sir, pack up your things, turn in the books, give over the keys, get out, you're fired. But that's not what happens at all, is it? The steward instead thinks to himself and begins plotting a little bit more. I know what I'll do. Since my master is taking away the management from me, I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. So instead, what does he decide to do? While there's still a little bit of time left, he decides he's going to squander even more of his master's possessions. That way, when he's removed from the management position, as he surely is going to be, he would be received into their homes in their good graces. Quickly, of course, the steward summons his master's debtors one by one and says, How much do you owe him? A hundred measures of oil. Okay, quickly. Sit down and write fifty. How much do you owe? A hundred measures of wheat. Quick, write down eighty. Go off, on your way. Now, by some estimates, that would have been the equivalent of about two years' worth of manual labor for each of those debtors. Now, I'm no accountant, but that sounds like an awful lot of money that's now lost thanks to this continually faithless steward. But again, the parable takes another little unexpected turn. We expect the master to be even further incensed, outraged all the more by his ex-manager's actions as he's going out the door there. But again, he doesn't call the police. He doesn't press charges. The master instead commands the steward. He commends him for acting, our translation says shrewdly, sometimes it could be also said prudently. The sons of this generation are more prudent in their generation than the sons of light. 
You see, this is even more expected, is that Jesus then echoes, after all of this parable, essentially echoes the rich master's parable in commending the prudent actions of this dishonest steward. I tell you, he's saying to the disciples, make friends of yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, that when that unrighteous wealth fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. Now at this point, you're probably thinking again, as I was as I was reading this, (laughs) what does this have to do with stewardship? What does it have to do with being faithful stewards under our good shepherd? Remember that Jesus' parables don't always have a way of making sense in the worldly way of things, but rather are about the kingdom and gracious rule of God. So Jesus' parables are meant to focus our eyes and ears, our hearts and minds on his word, on his promises, on his kingdom and his gracious rule. So don't be afraid, don't worry, don't fret. Jesus isn't teaching us how to do a bad job at something to make life easier for yourself later on. That's not it at all, is it? This parable instead reveals Jesus as the true steward of the heart, as the one, in fact, who rescues us from sin and death and the devil. But how, you think? How do we see Jesus at the center, or even stewardship at the heart of this parable? Well, consider a few contextual clues, a few things going on here. The steward, at least from what we can tell, appears to have been a long-time employee of the master. The debtors also were likely long-time tenants who farmed the rich man's land, and so their rent would be paid in wheat and oil and produce instead of money like gold or silver or shekels. Most, and maybe all of the dealings that the rich man had with his clients and business partners were through the steward, through this manager, because the manager, the steward, had the authority of the rich man to make the business deal. So if you made a business deal with the steward, it was as good as making it with the rich man. That was what it meant to be a steward, at least when they were doing their job the right way, to speak for and conduct the business on behalf of the rich man. And so unless these farmers and clients and debtors were ones who brought the accusation to the management against the steward, they really wouldn't have thought anything was out of the ordinary when they were summoned to meet him regarding their finances and their debts. Instead, they would have assumed that the steward was acting in good faith on the instruction of the master, especially when they told him their debts were to be reduced. Now, of course, they would have thought well of the steward for bringing good news that their debts were lowered, but more than that, they would have thanked and praised the generosity and the mercy of the rich master all the more. So hold on to that for a moment while we talk about the master as well, that, again, he has some odd behavior here. He could have had this dishonest, faithless steward arrested and imprisoned, but he doesn't. Instead, the master was merciful to the steward. And it was this, this point there that is so important. This master of the rich mercy, this rich mercy he has on his steward. The steward counted on that. He trusted on it. He banked everything in life on it. You could say he believed in it. And then when he came up with his solution to do and solve his problem, he banked everything on the mercy of his master. So the shrewdness or the prudence of the steward wasn't that he was building up goodwill for himself with his business partners, 
but that he counted and leaned on the mercy of the master to protect him in spite of his audacious behavior. And the crazy thing of all of this parable is that it it worked. Because the master left with the choice of either flip-flopping on the steward's debt reduction plan and upsetting long-time business partners, or leaving the accounting adjustments in place and being seen as merciful, he decided to commend the steward. He chose, instead, mercy. Now this is a remarkable parable. It's quite amazing. It's also quite difficult, to be honest. But still we ask, what does this mean? What does this have to do with our life as stewards? After all, doesn't God appoint us as stewards of everything he gives us? It's all gift, and we're to be faithful in caring for that. He does. He calls us to care for ourselves and our families, our church, our neighbors, our community, and others. Because all that we have is a gift from God, and therefore we return that portion of him in thanksgiving and joy. But what does the parable have to do with that? Does that mean that we are, as stewards, supposed to look for opportunities to squander whatever God puts in our care and keeping? Of course not. And Jesus' words at the end of the parable help to explain that. Luke reminds us at the closing, some important parts of the setting. Remember, the Pharisees were there too. And he says they were lovers of money. And they heard all these things. And they ridiculed Jesus. But Jesus said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your heart. For what is, it, what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. That closing part of Jesus' words, that really is the, the crux, the center of the parable, that God knows the heart. He knows us inside and out every which way. No thought, no word, no deed is hidden from him. There's no way really for us to make friends for ourselves out of unrighteous wealth without God being the wiser and knowing what's up. But the sons of this world think themselves prudent by trying to look after themselves in this life. But Jesus is reminding his disciples and the Pharisees and us that there's more to life than what we see and feel and hear and touch and taste and see now. So what is left then for us? Well, repentance and faith. The reminder that we, as Jesus says, are not to try to justify ourselves before men, and certainly not before God, because that, of course, is impossible. Like the dishonest steward, our only hope is to bank everything on the mercy of our Lord. The mercy who comes to us and is delivered to us in Jesus crucified and risen, who gave up all he had to save you. Not with gold or silver, Peter says, but with his holy precious blood and his innocent suffering and death, whose mercy is promised and delivered to you in word and water, whose mercy is poured out to you this day in his body and blood to feed and forgive you, and whose mercy is seen then in our stewardship and our love and our mercy to others. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.